0: An exciting ministry uh, to children where they can get God's Word at their level. Um, And so children ages 3 through 5th grade get to be dismissed. Uh, They run. If you're new to our church, feel free to bring them up there. Meet our teachers. Uh, We're glad to have Rebecca Allen and her team uh, lead us in that. Uh, Also excited about just uh, the different teenagers that serve and teaching that way, and our younger people, Uh, and even with our handbell. Uh, choir. Just great to see so many different people serving at whatever age. So if you're our guest, uh, that's intentional. Uh, We try to make sure that you know that it isn't just people that uh, get to wear this cool Justin Bieber mic, uh, that that they get to serve the Lord, uh, but that it's uh, anyone and everyone can serve the Lord because we all have a spiritual gift. So let's go ahead and look at uh, Ruth chapter 4. It's on page 222 uh, in your pew Bible if you want to follow along uh, with me. We are wrapping up our Ruth series called Hope Restored. I heard a lot of good feedback of how people have found hope through tough times. Uh, I pray that you have learned a lot. Uh, Maybe many of you have said, man, I I knew Ruth beforehand, uh, but I didn't know that we could uh, learn that much uh, different insights. It has helped me tremendously Uh, with just all the different people in our church in my own life that have gone through tough times, uh, just to lament and to say this is not the way it should be. But then also to keep my hope, a living hope, as our scripture verse says, uh, fixed on Christ. And so uh, pray you've been blessed through this series as I have, and I'm a little sad that it's coming to a close um, in the next week. But Ruth chapter 4 is where we are, and I uh, wanted to let you know a little bit about me. Uh, some of our family vacations, you know, you can't always plan it that your family vacation gets good weather, uh, but we typically go to the beach as a kid uh, for a week. We are, I'm from the D.C. area, and so we'd always go to Ocean City, Maryland, uh, Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, out on that side, and uh, lo and behold, pretty much every time we went, we would buy a new puzzle. Just something to have in the house to do uh, when it was a rainy day, uh, or if there was uh, nothing to do, or you were tired and mom and dad had to cook dinner, and they wanted you to just kind of calm down and and, and do something. Puzzles were a part uh, of our life. We even uh, enjoyed them so much that we would glue them together sometimes, bring them back from vacation, right? I mean, everything gets loaded back up into the truck, bring them back, glue them together, and now my mom in the house has probably four or five of these framed, hung up on the wall uh, to remind us of different things that we have done. I've been to some of your houses, and and you have puzzles on the wall too, I'm sure, from uh, family times together. Puzzles can be frustrating, right? I mean, especially when you're looking for that one last piece. My teenage years, I kind of wanted to become that guy that found that last piece, and so I did some sneaky stuff like what? Hiding a piece, you know, so I got that last one in there. Yeah, you, you know how that works. We've all done that. Uh, but there's also a sense of accomplishment. I mean, cohesion, clarity, order that finally comes out of chaos. And that doesn't just happen by grabbing two random puzzle pieces and just trying to completely mash them together. Uh, we solve these difficult puzzles by some of our own routines. We have ways of attacking a puzzle. What are some of the things that you do when you first get a puzzle out of a box? You found, you found the what? You find the corner pieces. What else? The edge pieces. You always got to get the edge pieces going. What else? You do what with the box, Danny? Put it back in the box. You put it back in the box. <laughs> All right. Uh, no matter what people give you, you're supposed to work with that, okay? Um, you put it back in the box. Yeah, anybody else? Light colors. you try to find the, the themes, but what do you typically do with the box? It's really important. You, you look at the cover. You have that set up so that everybody can see it. Sometimes now they give you a poster that's a little bit bigger uh, that you can kind of hang up to be able to look at. And uh, what if I was just to show you this bag right here if you didn't have a box? Could you tell what this puzzle was about? Maybe if I was to pass it around, you could kind of get the theme uh, for what was in it. But without a box, even though you could kind of maybe guess the theme, it's a gospel puzzle and it's the life of Jesus and it has all these numbers on it so you can actually look it up with scripture uh, to see what Christ is doing. But uh, none of you would probably get that by looking at this bag without the box. And I think in our life as well, it is hard to put all the puzzle pieces together sometimes without that big picture that lets know this is where things are going. And as we get to Ruth chapter 4, we are beginning to see that all these perplexing turns in Ruth and Naomi's life, they're actually not dead in streets after all. They, they, they look like dead in streets at the beginning, but they're actually leading us. And all the details, all the pieces are coming together, and the puzzle is actually going to read this, future hope. The best is yet to come. Let's read Ruth chapter 4. Now Boaz had gone up to the gate and he sat down. And behold, the Redeemer of whom Boaz had spoken came by. So Boaz said, turn aside, friend. Sit down here. And he turned aside and he sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and he said, sit down here. And so they sat down. We do business standing up, but if you're new to church, you're new to reading the Bible, this is the city gate. It's just a place where they do business, and they sit down to do business, okay? So then he said to the Redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from the country of Moab, is selling the parcel of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. So I thought I would tell, it, tell you of it and say, buy it in the presence of those sitting here, in the presence of the elders, my people. If you will redeem it, redeem it. But if you will not... Tell me that I may know, for there is no one besides you to redeem it. And I come after you. And he said, I will redeem it. But then Boaz said, The day you buy the field from the hand of Naomi, you will also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the widow of the dead, in order to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. Then the Redeemer, the one that could buy it, said, I can't redeem it for myself, lest I impair my own inheritance. Take my right of redemption yourself. For I cannot redeem it. Remember, we thought that he was just a selfish businessman from a couple of weeks ago. Didn't want to lose any of his inheritance uh, by giving it to another woman. And so he says, what used to be I could do it, now is I don't want to do it. And so we come to verse 7. Now this was the custom in former times in Israel concerning redeeming and exchanging. To confirm a transaction, the one drew off his sandal and gave it to the other. At this moment, I was wondering if Boaz was going to take off his sandal and just smack this guy. I mean, because how insulting would it be, with Naomi and Ruth present, potentially, for this man to say, no, I I don't want to help this person because it's going to hurt me. Right? Can you imagine what humiliation that would be to Ruth and Naomi? But he doesn't do that. He's he's, he's a godly man. He drills off his sandal, he gives it to the other, and this was the manner of attesting in Israel. So when the Redeemer said to Boaz, buy it for yourself, he drew off his sandal. Then Boaz said to the elders and all the people, you are witnesses this day that I have bought from the hand of Naomi all that belonged to Elimelech and all that belonged to Chilion and to Malon. Also Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon, I have bought to be my wife, to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. that The name of the dead may not be cut off from among his brothers and from the gate of his native place. You are witnesses this day. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. Now there's, now there's times of rejoicing. Listen to this. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. If you're new to the Bible, those are the two ladies that gave birth to 12 sons that began the nation of Israel. May you act worthily in Epaphra and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, Because of the offspring the Lord will give you by this woman. So there's praise to Boaz. So Boaz took Ruth, she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the woman said to Naomi, Here's more rejoicing. Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron. Hezron fathered Ram. Ram fathered Aminadab. Amenadab fathered Nashon. Nashon fathered Solomon. Solomon fathered Boaz. Boaz fathered Obed. Obed fathered Jesse. And Jesse fathered David. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you just for the reading of your word, to be able to take time, to be able just to hear a whole chapter. We thank you that you are a God that communicates, that we can know you, Lord, just this week I was getting my hair cut by a lady who had no spiritual beliefs, didn't know what a pastor was. And asking her if she had any spiritual beliefs, she goes, there is some higher power, but we can't know what or who that is. Lord, I just thank you that you are a God that makes yourself known, that wants relationship, that you have a plan for each person in this room. You created them. They are special in your eyes. They are cared for. And, Lord, you want them to come into a saving relationship with you. Thank you, Lord, that you made that way possible. Thank you, Lord, for having our hope restored. When we once were lost, Lord, now we can be found. We give you the praise and the glory and the honor. Amen. It's interesting as we uh, see this story, that the first thing that happens in Ruth chapter 4 is that there is a marriage between Boaz and Ruth, so there's a marriage of the couple. And it's interesting to see how Ruth goes on a journey throughout the story. Not just a geographical journey, not just a physical journey from Moab to Bethlehem, but she actually goes on kind of a a journey in her own identity. Her status, her standing before people change as the story progresses. So let's use our Bibles. Let's go back to Ruth chapter 2, verse 10. And let's see how she begins to talk about herself. And let's see how that progresses to chapter 4. Her identity changes. Verse 10, notice what she calls herself. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a what? A foreigner. She refers to herself at the beginning as a foreigner, or a stranger, or an alien in the land. She's a Moabite. Go down to verse 13, chapter 2, verse 13. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to who? To your servant, though I am not one of your servants. So she basically uses the word here, slave. So she goes from foreigner to to, I am a slave. Now go over to chapter 3, verse 9. This is in the middle of the night when Ruth startles Boaz. Boaz. Pastor Pat preached that sermon and didn't get fired, and so I'm not going to go back on chapter 3. He did a great job. Uh, But he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And so this time, she calls herself basically a maidservant. It's a little bit more uh, personal of a term. Now we get all the way to chapter 4, verse 13, and who is she? So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. She has been utterly transformed from a foreigner, from a slave, to a servant, to a wife. This Moabite girl is likened now to the patriarchs or the matriarchs in the past. Look with me at verse 11. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders, we are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman, Ruth, who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. Everything about Ruth has been changed forever. Now she is included in the very names and the very blessings of some of the most famous women uh, in all of the Old Testament. And guess what? I just want you to know that your life can change too. Because the Bible says that we too were once foreigners, that we were once aliens But then God brought us in, and now we are actually his bride, and we are his servants. For those of you that are here that think this could never happen to you, number one, I'm just glad that you're here. If you're here today, and you don't know Christ, you're new to Christianity, you're new to church, we expect you to be here, we want you to be here. And it is normal to come to church and to see us all dressed up, and to think, I'm not good enough. That is normal, we know that. Don't let that fool you. None of us here think that we are good enough. Okay, May I remind you that Ruth did not grow up in a Christian school. Ruth was not homeschooled. Ruth did not get baptized in a Baptist church. But guess what? She was redeemed. She was redeemed. I praise God that heaven is not going to be filled with straight-A students or Boy Scouts. Right? Heaven is going to be filled with prostitutes. Moabites and sinners. That's what heaven's going to be filled with. Yes, if you have ever thought that only good people go to heaven, this passage is going to confront you to say, it is the lowest of the low that get to go to heaven. You say, Josh, where do you get that from? Look at 11 and 12 with me. You need to see this. 11 and 12, they blessed her to be like Rachel and Leah. They want her to have many sons, Look at verse 12, and may your house be like the house of Perez who Tamar bore to Judah because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. You are going to be so glad you came to church this morning. You're like, why is that? Because if you turn back to Genesis 38, you're going to hear a story about Judah and Tamar. Now Tamar is married to one of Judah's oldest sons. But guess what happens? Her husband dies. Just like in Ruth, her husband dies. So Tamar is fearful of no family. She has no hope. And so she goes to Judah, her father in law, who's supposed to take care of her, and says, Your youngest son needs to marry me to take care of me and to continue on the name of your son. But guess what happens? Judah says, not going to do it. Judah does not care for his daughter-in-law. And it is not like today where a lady could go out and get a job and provide for herself and have her own home or have life insurance from her husband and and last for a little while. That's not the society that we're living in. She really needs a provider, and Judah will not do it. So she has a plan. Tamar dresses up like a prostitute and stands on the corner and her father-in-law, Judah, sed- comes in, and she seduces him. They have intimate relations, and she's going to give birth to twins. She tricks her father-in-law. And the first one, the first child out of the twins, they tie a rope around his wrist. He so said that this is the first one that's going to come out. But then he doesn't come out. Perez jumps in front and beats the other twin. And so, why does God's word, without any blush, without any shame, say, we want you to be like Perez, Boaz? Because here in the context, what it's saying is, Boaz, you've jumped the family line. You've jumped in. There was another redeemer that could have redeemed Ruth and Naomi, but you jumped the line, and may you leap for God's glory. May, may you be like Perez, who beat the other twin, who got into the family lineage. You say, wow, that's, that's in the Bible? Yes, that's in the Bible. L- l- let's keep going. Who is Boaz's mom? Her name is Rahab. How do we know that? Go over to the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke. Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. It sounds very similar to what we just heard at the end of Ruth because it's the same genealogy. And it says here, And Ram, the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Solomon, and Solomon, the father of Boaz... Do you notice that it's all talking about fathers here? You could just keep going, right? Do you need to mention who the wife is? Nope. And Boaz by who? Rahab. Rahab, in case you don't know your Bible history, is the prostitute in Jericho. And then you got to say, well, Boaz is the son of of a prostitute in Jericho who marries Ruth the Moabites. And who are the Moabites? The Moabites started because of an incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. A dad and his daughters. That's how the nation of the Moabites came about. It... Some of you are going, I thought my family was bad. You know, all of us are dreading Thanksgiving, right? Seeing some of those people. This is the days of our lives of the Bible, okay? I mean, this is bad stuff. And you guys are going, man, whew. But the question is, whose genealogy is all of this a part of? Jesus' genealogy. The genealogy of Christ is filled with Moabites, prostitutes, and sinners. And the big glaring question we all have to ask is, why? Why? Because Jesus came to save sinners. Right? Good people don't need to be forgiven. And so the one thing we all have in common in this church is that we confess that we are sinners and in desperate need of Jesus. You should see a humility when you come to our church. You should not have an air of self-righteousness that we grew up in church. No. God loves to bring in people that are on the margins of life. Redemption is for everybody. Salvation is available to anyone who will call upon the name of the Lord. That is the good news of the gospel. And so Ruth gets a brand new identity. She is no longer a poor, false, God worshiping enemy of Israel. She is now accepted and fulfilled and worthy bride. And how is that for happily ever after? Right? We all love stories that end happily ever after. Here is a girl that was a foreigner, an alien, a stranger, now brought into the very family of God once, not a people, but now a people. And the story ends with her giving birth to a son. Now we have to pause here, and we have to notice that this is exactly what Naomi prayed for. Naomi prayed that Ruth would find rest in the arms of a husband. Go back with me to Ruth chapter 1, verse 9. Ruth 1, 9. And listen to Naomi's prayer. When Naomi is encouraging her to stay in Moab, to not follow her back to Bethlehem, she actually prays this, the Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And what you need to know here is this, God answers prayer. But guess what? Did he answer prayer according to how Naomi wanted it? No. No. But did he do it exceedingly abundantly above all that she could ask or think? Did he do it better than what she wanted? Yes. So God answers Naomi's prayer, but not by giving her a husband in Moab, no. But by including her with Boaz in the nation of Israel to be the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. So we see here again that God is sovereign or that God is in control. There's no miracles in the book of Ruth. There's no standing still of the sun or the water parting. There's no angelic messenger coming and saying, this is what you should do. Nope. Boaz gets up one day and he goes to work. Ruth gets up one day and she goes to work. And God in the ordinary events of everyday human life is directing it to fulfill his plans. And his plans for you are good. God works all things together for good. And the ordinary lives of this small town out in the middle of nowhere, Bethlehemite's, These are not the movers and shakers of Israel, and neither are we, right, in our nation. Small town of Loudoun, not the movers and shakers of America, and God works in the ordinary affairs, and he gives them a son. Look with me here at 4.13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Now up until this point, the author has not mentioned the Lord's activity except for back in chapter 1, verse 6. In chapter 1, verse 6, the Lord is given credit to ending the famine Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab. For she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. That is the only other time in this whole book that God is the subject of an active verb. God is providing the food and here again he steps on the scenes and he is the one who is giving conception to Ruth. He is acting in the mundane because isn't it natural for ladies to have children? I mean, isn't having a child natural after all? I mean, some of us in here think it's as simple as that. You go on a date, you get married, you have kids whenever you want. But is life really that linear? Do we all know someone in this church who has struggled with infertility or miscarriages or somebody at work or in our neighborhood? Is it all that natural to have a child? May I remind you that it isn't just people that we know that have struggled with infertility and miscarriages. Ruth has as well. She was married to 10 years to Malon. 10 years. Now, some of you in today's age, that's exactly when I would want to start having kids because I'd get my career started. I'd make some money. I'd buy some plush luxury items. I'd travel the world. We'd get a dog to see if we could kind of, you know, train something, okay? <laughs> and, then, and then we would have kids whenever we wanted, But that's not how it worked back then. There's nothing wrong with that plan. You you are free to have that plan if you so choose. But back then, you were trying to have kids right off the bat. And so for 10 years, Ruth has already been married, and she is barren. She is one of the women in the Bible that has her womb closed. And so it is remarkable that the Lord here comes back on the scene in the book of Ruth at the very end, and he gives her conception. And she has a child. But here's the next crazy part of this story. As the suspense continues, Ruth disappears from the story. After verse 13, did you know that Ruth's name is not mentioned again? She just gave birth to a baby. Actually, we had a baby born just yesterday at our church to Chuck and Sandra Nemeth. And I wonder if Sandra would really appreciate if all the credit was given to Bernadette. Look with me here in this story and see how I'm sure Ruth feels like chopped liver. Verse 14, the woman said to Naomi, to who? To who? But who gave birth to the son? Ruth. Okay, just, just making sure I'm getting it straight. Then the woman said to Naomi, blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, do we even get a name there? Nope, just your daughter-in-law, who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. Ladies, see if you like this. Verse 17, and the woman in the neighborhood gave him a name. You don't even get to choose. It's the hospital staff, okay? And a son has been born to who? A son has been born to who? Naomi. I can see Ruth laying there saying, "I just did all of this work. I'm pretty sure it wasn't her." OK? I, I can remember a couple of key moments, even with the epidural. All right? I, I know that, that that is my son. But all the credit goes to Naomi, and as Bible students, we have to say what? Why? Why? Because the camera is zooming out to give us a perspective of Naomi's life from whom this whole story, it is God's kindness, has been framed around Naomi. I think this book probably deserves to be called Naomi. It's really here at the end. It's a confrontation to Naomi who began the story thinking that God had dealt bitterly with her. And now it's, Naomi, look who is in your lap. Look at who you are holding. God is good. That's our next point this morning. God is good. All the time. Thank you, Pat. I don't know about the week that you've had, but I know back in chapter 1 that Naomi talks about the Lord as afflicting her, and she is bemoaning her bitter take on life. And now, beloved, just one year later, just one year later, she is surrounded by friends. Her daughter-in-law is now married. She's holding a baby in her arms, and it says here, the Lord has provided for you. God proved himself faithful in the toughest of circumstances. And you need to know this. Listen up. Every eye right here, not on Naomi's timetable, not according to Naomi's plan. She would never want to write chapter 1, and I don't want to make for a second or diminish your pain. You would never want to write chapter 1 in your life either. But all of these dead ends are seemingly dead ends to channels of God's grace and love and His goodness, and that He provides infinitely better plans. You meant it to me for evil, but God meant it to me for what? For good. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, If you're new to church, I want to ask you a question. Why do good things happen to bad people? Not why do bad things happen to good people. That's what we always want to know. Why do bad things happen to good people? No, why do good things happen to bad people? According to the Bible, God is good. Psalms 86.5 says, For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. God is good. And then here's the next thing. God made you. Genesis 1.3, And God made the heavens and the earth, and it was? Very good. How does he end every single day? And God saw that it was? Good. God is Good. He made this world good. He caused us to know Him. But guess what? We have rejected His loving leadership in our lives. By nature, we are committed to our own preferences, our own ways, and the Bible calls us sinners. If you're new to church... We prefer our own ways, our own ideas. We get to make up our own rules. We want to decide what for us is good. Even though God is all wise and God is good, we think that we know better than God does. And there isn't a single person in this church who doesn't have a testimony like that. All of us have, for a season of time, run our own hell-bound race away from God's goodness. And he pursued us. So I want to ask you this morning, what do you think of marriage? What do you think of children? What do you think of having a family? Or all the other things in this way that the people are finally enjoying? None of those things are the point of life. But they're to be enjoyed. And all of those gifts are from a good father. And all of those gifts are supposed to point you back to him. James 1.17 says, Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. The things that you enjoy today, you could say, I earned this. Well, this is just normal. Everybody gets this. No, every single thing from the life that you have, the breath that you take, the heartbeat that you have, all of that is from a good, good father. Government, family, life, all of those are from him, and they are a reflection of his character. But it is not supposed to be about the gift. That's where we get it mixed up. We begin to worship the creation instead of what? The creator. Your own life right now is someplace in this story. You're somewhere in Ruth 1 through 4. But your life is like this book that you haven't finished reading yet. You haven't finished the culminating climax of coming into God's presence. So hear me on this. It is wrong for you at this point in the story to stop and to judge God based upon what you have experienced so far. It is wrong for you to stop and to say, because this is where I am in this story, I'm going to judge God. So far, is not the end of the story. You may be Naomi in chapter 1, that is bitter. You may be in Naomi in chapter 3, who is hopeful, but whatever chapter you are in, if you are here this morning, your story is not done yet. Naomi lost all the things that she had been clinging to. Her life was full, and she lost it all. But even her loss was a part of God's good plan for her. If she had first not lost everything, we would never have known about her. She would never have been able to appreciate Ruth's true worth, which the ladies in chapter 4, verse 15, what do they say? For your daughter-in-law who loves you, is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him. What is her daughter-in-law to her? Worth more than what? And how important are sons in the ancient Near East? Very. So in other words, the crucible of her suffering, painful as it was, was necessary for her spiritual growth in God's plan. All of us are tempted to draw conclusions about our life when the story isn't over yet. Trust God's goodness. Have arguments in your mind to combat those negative thoughts. Because we like to say this, because God hasn't done this, therefore he will never do that. But do we know that for sure? And do we know that even if we want this, that that, this is the very thing that would actually kill us? Nothing that he withholds is necessary. and Everything he provides is essential for us. And we end with looking that God is faithful. God is faithful. God's actions aren't over yet. God blessed Naomi, and hear this, even while she was complaining. It's okay to bemoan and to lament and complain, but complain to the Lord. And God blesses her. She begins to praise him in chapter 2. And so I just want to ask you, how is your trust in God's care this morning? What are those circumstances that are challenging that trust? What arguments can you use to marshal your own soul, even when you're considering that difficult situation? What parts of your future are you most tempted to believe that God will mishandle? You might drop that one might get that one wrong. Aren't you encouraged by how God has been faithful in the past? C- can you name those times that he's been faithful to you in the past? Can you begin to number them? That, those are your very arguments to trust God where? In the future. You've got to be able to name what he's done in the past so you can trust him in the future. And it never happens on our timetable because only God is sovereign. If you have checked out for the entire message, here's the last point that I want to just drive home so you can kind of walk away with something, and it's something you'll never expect me to say. The greatest sermon you will ever hear preached is not the one that I give, but it's the one that you preach to yourself all week long. You get that? The greatest sermon you will ever hear is not one that you will hear in church, not given by me, guarantee you that. It is the one that you will preach to yourself all week long because you want to know why? You're the most impact, impactful person to you. You listen to you more than anybody else. This is 30 minutes of a sermon, right? But, but what do you have all day and all week long going on? A conversation with yourself. You look at the world, you tell yourself certain things, and guess what you do? You listen to yourself, and you begin to believe it. Psalms 42, why are you cast down, O my soul? What is he doing? He's listening to himself, and he begins to list all the bad things in his life. You know what the problem is? We listen to ourselves, and here's what you need to do. You need to preach to yourself. I have three books I want to give away, three of this. Spiritual Depression, Its Causes and Cure, D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. This is what he says. The art of spiritual living through tough times is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand, you have to address yourself, you have to preach to yourself, you have to question yourself. You must turn on yourself, upbraid yourself, condemn yourself, exhort yourself, and say to yourself, hope in God, instead of uttering in this depressed and unhappy way. And then you must go on and remind yourself of God, who God is, what God is, what God has done, and what God has pledged himself to do. If you are here this morning and you are in spiritual depression, despair, your heart is down, this is the best book I have ever read. And it is going to tell you that you listen to your thoughts and you need to preach God's word to your thoughts. Amen? It is scripture that rebukes, you know, we're not going to make it. What does God's word say? You know, this is going on in my life. It's too difficult. What does God's word say? I can't forgive her. What does God's word say? Right? All of those things that we tell ourselves, we have to preach to ourselves. And I just want to encourage you with this as we close. You need to talk to a friend about it. If you come here and you don't have a friend with you, you might be inspired by the teaching, by the preaching, but you will not leave changed. If you don't have a friend to think about this and to work with it in, you are never going to learn. You guys know I've been to a lot of school, right? All the classes, all the lectures, all the teachers, all the things I thought, I'm never going to forget that that was good. And all the classes I walked away from completely changed. I thought it was the professor. You know what I realized? It was the relationships that I had built in the classroom with other students who worked it into my life. If you are here and you go to Sunday school and you go to small groups and you hear sermons and it just feeds in information, guess what it does? It just rolls right off. Because your intellect can handle a whole lot more than your heart can change. Your mind is more easily convinced than your heart. And you need a friend to help work this in and out with you. If you don't have a friend in this church, this church is useless. You are cutting off the very channel of God's power in your life. Now, I've used the word friend, but if you've been here for a while, what buzzword could I use? all it is. You say, Josh, what's a friend? A friend is what Ruth has been to Naomi when she said, where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And where you die, I will die. Being a friend is not information, it's not a skill, it's being present, being committed, being there, being there for somebody over a long period of time. And beloved, that is why the word love in this love story of Ruth chapter, Ruth one through four, the word love is only used between Ruth and Naomi. Only time it's used in the whole book. And it's between a mother-in-law and a daughter-in-law. Don't look, okay? It's like, are you serious? <laughs> yes, because Naomi needed Ruth to convince her that God is good, that God is sovereign, and that God is faithful. And if you come here and you nod and you nod and you listen and you get energized, but you don't have somebody to go and talk with, guess what you come back next week and you do? You nod and you listen and you get excited but it leads to no change. Do you want to change? Go out in Palmer Hall right now with coffee and ask somebody, how have you seen God's hand work in your life this week? I challenge you. In the mundane, right? God gave birth to Obed through Ruth. God intervened. He was active in the mundane. Talk to somebody out there. How have you seen God's hand at work in the mundane this week? You need a friend. I pray that you'd find that friend. If you want to come back, second service. We have lunch afterwards to develop more friendship here. Let's stand and we'll sing our closing song.